This is a HeadGum Podcast. While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. Welcome to Overdue. This is a podcast about the books that you've been meaning to read. My name is Craig. And my name is Laura. Not Andrew. Not Andrew. Why are you named Laura, not Andrew? Well, because my parents liked the name. That's a that's a, an acceptable reason. If I was going to be a boy, I was going to be Douglas. Oh. So I wouldn't have been Andrew anyway. No. Okay, Douglas, you've been on the no. show. <laughs> no. 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 You're here because Andrew is not. Um, No, I'm always here, but I'm on the podcast because Andrew is out of the country. He is. Yes. Um, You're you're a stickler for words and their meanings. We've already said you've been on the show before. I have. When were you on the show before? Um, I was on the show a little over a year ago um, when Susanna, Andrew's wife, Mm -hmm. read Eat, Pray, Love. Mm -hmm. Um. And we did a Overdue Wives episode. Yes, we didn't say this on this episode, but you are my wife. I am your oh, husband. Yeah. We are partners. That is true. In life and crime. Not so much crime. Not so much the crime. But life. Yeah. Together. Every yeah. day. Yeah. So. I mean, I've been away for like two days, but. It's, it's weird. We were still like married. married. We didn't take a marriage break for two days. <laughs> So we're going to talk about a book. We talk about a book each week on this show. Uh, Usually one of the hosts has read it, and more usually the other host has not, uh, such is the case this week. What book did you read, honey? Um, I read a novel called March by Geraldine Brooks. It won a Pulitzer in 2006, I believe. That's correct, because it was published in 2005. And I am a fan of historical fiction, so I was intrigued to read this book because it is a novelization of what Mr. March might have been out and about doing during the storytelling of uh, Louise May Alcott's The Little Women. Um, Uh, Craig, you have not read Little Women. No. Uh, hey, before you put me on blast, I'd like to thank our Patreon supporter, Courtney, for recommending this book. For yeah. Hey, show. thanks, Courtney. <laughs> I really enjoyed this book. Okay. Um, end of podcast. <laughs> the end. Thanks, Courtney. <laughs> but so you want to put me on blast for not reading Little Women? Uh, yeah. Not only not reading Little Women, as someone who grew up with a mom and two sisters, women I know are a big part of your life mm-hmm. and very influential in your life. Mm-hmm. Um. And not only have you not read the book, you didn't even see the Winona Ryder movie version. No, I didn't. I've seen Dirty Dancing. Does that? that nope. Not even close. Mm. Not the same thing at all. <laughs> different era, different style. Yeah. Nobody puts baby in the corner of the Civil War. No. No. No one does that. No. There's no dancing in this. Is there dancing in Little Women? Uh, Is it dirty? No. <laughs> okay. So what is Little Women? Because, okay, so you're saying this book 
uh, is based off of a character from Little Women. Yes. Which was published in 1868, I think. Let me check my notes. So Little Women was published in two parts. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. If you have a copy, there is probably, it's probably one book. Sure. um, With part one and part two. Part one is covered in part through this book that I read, March. Okay. Okay. Um, because anyone, spoilers if you haven't read Little Women like Craig, at the end of part one is Christmas Day and father comes home for Christmas. Hooray! Um, it's very exciting. The girls are all very excited, all four of the March daughters. In part two is where you get the extremely sad part where, are you ready for this, Craig? Are you ready? I don't know. Am I ready? Beth, who in the 1994 movie version is played by Claire Danes. Claire Danes. Dies. No. It's the first time I remember crying in the movie theater. (laughs) Who were you with in the movie theater? My mom. Okay. And maybe the rest of my family. I don't know. Just sitting there crying away Mm -hmm. into your popcorn. Yeah. It was the first time I remember crying. At a movie. I think I've talked about this on the podcast. I think the first movie I cried at in the movie theater was Deep Impact. What part of Deep Impact? I think it was when Taya Leone was standing on the beach with her dad, who's played by a man I don't remember, and the waves are going to come get them. Okay. I was with a bunch of middle school boys, and me and only one other boy were crying. I don't think it's that good of a movie, but it made me sad. Yeah. Well, I mean, the potential you know catastrophic events for humanity are are pretty sad yeah that's an everyday thing yeah um so this book anyway (laughs) beth dies in part two but march only covers part one of little women okay good just for your reference in case you would like to watch the film that made me cry for the first time uh joe march who is the sister who is based on louise may alcott oh because yeah because it's her her it is sort of a semi-auto biographical story um is played by winona Ryder. Mm-hmm. the eldest sister meg is played by a woman named trini alvarado i don't, I don't think is. i've seen anything nope. else as i mentioned claire danes plays beth yep may sad. she rest in peace mm-hmm. beth march not claire danes claire Danes still staying strong <laughs> very much alive and yep. doing very well on homeland okay um and the youngest sister uh amy march is played by kristen dunce kirsten dunst kirsten dunce Whatever. Of Spider-Man. Yeah. And other things. Uh, So this book is based off Little Women. So if you've read Little Women, you have a leg up. Um, But not everyone has, and I still think people enjoy the book. So, like, what's going on with Geraldine Brooks? Do you need me to run down what I know about her? What do you have? Yeah, you did a little bit more work on researching her. A little bit. Just a bateen more work. Bateen more. She was uh, born in 1955. She's an Australian-American author. Uh, It's funny, the story behind her being Australian is kind of interesting. Her dad was a big band singer, and he was in Australia for a tour or something like that, and their manager took off. Like during World War II? Well, she was born in 1955, so maybe after World War II. Okay. And the band's manager took all their money and just disappeared. Oh, that's not great. So he was stranded in Adelaide, Australia. And decided to stay. And okay. Met a woman, and they had a family, including Geraldine Brooks. <laughs> so great. Uh, and she went to school there, and then she eventually moved to the United States. So she is 
her dad's American, her mom's Australian, and she grew up in Australia in Sydney. And then she moved to the States to attend uh, Columbia University for journalism. She then uh, met her husband, Tony Hurwitz, I think is his name. Yes. Is that true? Um, he's also a journalist. He's a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist, I think. He is also a Civil War aficionado and mm, author. Which becomes important in this book. Seeing as how Little Women is set in the 1860s. There you go. In the United States. Civil War. Civil War. The Civil War. <laughs> Do you have anything else about it? <laughs> yes. Uh, so she was a correspondent for the Wall Street Journal, um, and she did writing in Africa and the Balkans and the Middle East. Uh, she was there during kind of the Persian Gulf War era. Uh, her first book, she wrote some nonfiction first. Her first book was called Nine Parts of Desire, which was based on experiences of Muslim women in the Middle East. And then her first novel which is Year of Wonder or Year of Wonders? Year of Wonders. The Year of Wonders, which was set in 1666, I think, uh, which is about, it's set in a town in England during the bubonic plague. Uh, and she said that she shifted to fiction out of nonfiction. A lot of her nonfiction was like embedded in communities and interest in certain people. And she had some kids and decided that she did not want to be globetrotting, uh, did not think it practical, and started writing fiction kind of based off of germs of stories um, that came across, you know, things that she found interesting or something like that. So it is not surprising to me that she is, her first two novels are historical fiction of some kind because of her natural journalistic proclivities. Um, she had a, there's a funny anecdote from when this book uh, won the Pulitzer, uh, one of her colleagues, um, a journalist said, you know, gave her the news and she said, that's impossible. I haven't done any journalism this year. <laughs> she just d did not assume that it, that her book was even in contention. And yeah, as you said, her husband is a civil war aficionado, which certainly got her into this and, and helped her. Um, she yeah, also she oh, thanks ahead. him in, uh, her afterward where she references a number of the um, historical books and autobiographies and other sort of documents that she has read in preparation for this book. And uh, she ends her afterwards saying, I would like to apologize for all of the times I refused to get out of the car or whined about the heat at Gettysburg for all the complaints about too many shelves colonized by his civil war tomes and all of the moaning over weekend expeditions devoted to events such as the internment of Stonewall Jackson's horse. I am not sure quite when or where it happened, but on a sunken road somewhere, I finally saw the light. Uh, referring to her sort of discovery and interest in the Civil War, mm. um, thanks in part to her husband. There you go. I also read that she, they own a home in Virginia off the Potomac, and there was a battle there that took place in 1861, the Battle of Ball's Bluff. Sure enough, that starts the book. March. Interesting. Uh, she found a Union soldier's belt buckle in her courtyard. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of the germ of where this book came from. Um, is there anything else you wanted to say about Alcott and the connections to this novel or any other background stuff before yeah. we dive in? Um, one of the things that I, I said earlier that I very much enjoyed reading this book, it appealed to my historical fiction uh, 
desires and likes um and also to my fond memories of little women both the book and the film Mm -hmm. and it wasn't until i had finished reading the book um that i realized there was not only an afterword by brooks but also a like penguin publishing like questions with the author and various other helpful items sure and uh, i was struck by a part of the afterword that says um alcott's story is concerned with the way a year lived at the edge of war has worked changes in the characters of these little women but what the war has done to march himself is left unstated and that is what inspired her imagination to work as to what might have happened to him. Anybody who has read Little Women um, knows that in the second part, as the girls grow older, though Mr. March is back in their world, um, he is pretty quiet, pretty reserved, pretty much in the background. Okay. Um, you don't get a ton of him in the second part as the girls grow up. And I would find it amusing and interesting to know sort of what Brooks's sort of idea of what this war-torn man might have hmm. been. Okay. Um, even though he is not, or maybe especially because he is not featured very prominently in the second part of the book. Um, cool. Okay. Yeah. Alcott, did you mention that it's autobiographical or did I say that? You, you alluded to it that one of the sisters in Little Women is basically based off of Alcott. Yeah, so Josephine, or Jo, uh-huh. as she is known, um, is based off of Alcott herself. Yeah. Um, and then she also grew up with three sisters. Okay. Um, so Meg and Beth and Amy are modeled off of her sisters. Marmy, who is the mom, who I believe that's her given mom. name. That's a good mom. Where does that name come from? Is that her, her name? Her name is Margaret. Mm. Her, her maiden name was Margaret Day. Um, Sounds like a singer. What, what the, kind the, of singer? Like a jazz singer. The talented, the the most talented Miss Margaret May, Margaret Day, excuse Day. me. I believe I read at some point that Marmy was probably a written version of how people would say mommy in a very thick New England accent. In it, ooh. I don't know if I buy that. Um, I don't even but I read it on the that. internet. So, um, <laughs> like a weird. Okay. Uh, before we dive into the book, do you have any like personal connections to the Civil War, like through family or family who's really into it? Because I am basically a Yankee through and through, and I've never like had a relative that's like I'm a Civil War buff. We go to the battlefields. I don't have relatives that were um south of the Mason Dixon. Correct. Yeah. <laughs> um I am uh through my dad's side like 14th generation Americans, part of the Dutch settlement in New York in the 1640s. They did not go down south. Um sure not. Hmm. Um and uh similarly through my mom's side um her maiden name is Greenwood, um, which is very British, um, yes, but true. also is sort of a 1700s, late 1600s kind of uh, original folks who came over. And certainly I have a great grandmother who came over from Finland. Um, so that's not that long ago. Um, but we're pretty Yankee. Yeah. And I, I don't want to say that as a judgment, but just that I think, 
you know, and certainly in a time right now where we are having, you know, like where New Orleans is tearing down Confederate monuments because it's about time. We're talking about the Civil War again in a way that we haven't before. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I just don't have a like personal connection to that whole. Yeah. And I would say as someone who is interested in ancestry and genealogy, Mm -hmm. and I have done that kind of research. um when we go to visit the uh, gravesite of my grandparents, yeah. of my Van Tassel grandparents um, in New York, um, up the river, up the Hudson River from Manhattan, um, I can follow my family line back and find revolutionary soldiers and 1812 war soldiers and things like that. Um but from what I can tell, sort of direct ancestors, and I'm sure that there are cousins in various degrees um, that fought in the Civil War, but the way that sort of the generations of my family happened... Um, yeah, we were talking about that. It kind of skipped. It kind of skipped. They were either too old um, or too young. A bunch of babies to... going into the Civil War. That's not going to work out. Well, and that sort of is a little bit interesting because as uh, Brooks was looking to... A sort of imagine what Mr. March was doing. Um, March is modeled after Alcott's father. Sure. A Bronson Alcott. But because, again, sort of timeline things didn't really work as ideally as she would have liked, Bronson Alcott was actually in his mid-60s by the time the Civil War broke out. Um, uh. So it was she could not make him the same age that Alcott's father was at the same point in history. Sure, okay. Um, Because you would not have sent a 60-plus-year-old no. man to be the chaplain of a Union troop in the Civil no, War. maybe you would have been a general or something if you were experienced as But such. if you had military yes. experience, which he did not. <laughs> um, just find a school teacher, make him a general, just go. Just anybody who's willing to be a leader of men, just get in there. Now, anybody who's willing to be a soldier is a different story. That's true. Okay. But her father, who went by Bronson, um, was a teacher, not a chaplain. Okay. So Mr. March, both in Little Women and in this book, is a chaplain. Um, sure. He's a man of God. Um, he was both in real life and the character of March. Um, they were non-resistance gentlemen they were nonviolent. they were sort of okay they were pacifist um, they, they were, were pacifist yes um bronson and therefore march in this book are actually part of what is the early wave of non-dairy vegetarians also known as vegans whoa your head is fully sideways right now you're, uh, you're, you're gonna give yourself a neck strain <laughs> they don't talk about it a lot except in the fact that like when he is served food at various points in the book um there are things that he will not take part in um and therefore he goes hungry a fair amount because he's not gonna have anything that's made with animal product like he's not even gonna eat an egg he's not gonna eat no oh man no i could oh certainly not scrambled eggs are good though yeah well not to all people apparently um, and and there are many reasons to be vegan and vegetarian yes, and true. have that's dietary, true. you know, restrictions and ideals and things like that. Um, oddly enough, Louis May Alcott's father um, actually founded a commune called the Fruitlands, which apparently you can go and visit 
um, in Massachusetts. It was this sort of utopian vegan society. Um, it didn't last very long. Um, <laughs> Did they run out of food? Well, so uh, Massachusetts gets real cold. Yeah. Um, and they didn't want to wear wool or leathers because those were the property of the animals. Because they didn't have synthetics. Um, Plants don't keep you warm. Yeah. And they're, um, they were okay with harvesting crops and yeah. things. But that first winter, uh, the only winter um, that Fruitlands had people living in it, <laughs> no. um, there was a worm infestation in the apple crop, which is a, apparently was a big staple of their diet. Um, and because they didn't want to hurt the worms. Um, Stop. They lost most of that Come crop. On. And you gotta so... draw the line at worms though. But worms are God's creatures too. Yeah, I guess. Um But they're not like vertebrate mammals. No, but Bronson and Mr. March in this book were sort of transcendentalists and believed oh, yes, that fair. every okay. living mm-hmm. thing yep, had sure. its purpose and was there for a reason and to take the life of another living creature. Do they know that was bad? Did they know that that plants are like living things, though? How did and they felt okay about that? I'm not sure what the transcendentalist ideas about plants are. If you listening are a transcendentalist who has thoughts about plants, please let us. You know. can let us know. That'd be great. Because they certainly were on board with eating the apples from trees and other fruits, mm-hmm. and. Uh, certainly corn and various other things, you know. As I told you the other day, I was reading an article about how the trees are moving. The trees are moving west and north here on on North America. Yeah, and in my brain, that's them, like, pulling their roots up and, like, walking. Yeah. It's not like that. No. There's some other deep-seated, I don't know, sci-fi thing that's in my brain. Get it? Jeez. We should take a break. Uh, You need a break from me? Yeah, maybe. All right, we'll be back in a second. Okay, so real quick, we need to talk about July 15th. July? July. Whoa, you just lit up. So in July, uh, Overdue is doing two live shows. Do you, do you, Laura, know when and where they are? Um, they are in Boston and Philadelphia. Yep. The dates are on my calendar, but I don't know them <laughs> off the top of my head. But so, I bet you do. So the July 15th date, uh, we'll be doing a show in Boston uh, with the Unfriendly Black Hotties, Christina and Camille, uh, at the Christ- at the Christina, at the PRX <laughs> Podcast Garage, Christina's Podcast Garage. Uh, <laughs> tickets to that are 10 bucks, and you can find them at bit.ly slash overdue hotties to order them. Mm. Uh, the Philly Podfest is free. It's July 23rd. Yep. And that's here as part of the Philly Pod Fest. So you can find out more information about that at phillypodfest.com. I think that's the website. Let me double check to make sure I didn't lie, Laura Vamp. In for the me. city of brotherly love and sisterly affection is what I have heard it referred to as recently. Um, because apparently brotherly love was a little bit sexist. So they added sisterly affection, which I don't know if that makes it any better, but whatever. Yeah, it's fine. I mean, it's a great city. We live it's here. We love cool it. It's a pretty cool city. We like it here. We don't plan on leaving. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, yes, we are going to be uh, here. It's phillypopfest.com for more information. 
We will be at the Kitchen Table Gallery uh, at 5 p.m. on Sunday the 23rd. So you should check those out and come see us. We've got Facebook events for both if you want RSVP, but you also have to buy tickets to Boston. What are you doing? You're signing something to me. What is happening? I wondered if we were going to have perhaps a few mugs available oh, for purchase. Yeah, I think we um, will. And some bookmarks and maybe some like stickers and things. Yeah, what about totes? Totes? We got totes. Totes, we've got totes. <laughs> was that a good joke? That was a good joke. Okay. Yeah, we will definitely try to have some of those things on hand uh, at both of those shows so that if you make it there, you can spend even more money than you already did and express your fandom and share the podcast with your friends and families and strangers on public transportation those are all noble goals that's what i do when i carry totes on public transportation i'm just advertising things i like to strangers become a walking advertisement come to our shows and buy our stuff overdue live <laughs> So let's talk about this book, huh? So what we we talked about like the book it's based on. Mm-hmm. Um but you haven't read that recently and I think you enjoyed this one and it sounds like people enjoyed this one regardless. So let's talk about what happens in this book and if it's useful to reference little women fine, but I imagine that's a book that we're going to have to cover on this show somewhere down the line. So like what is going on in March by Geraldine yeah. Brooks? Um so I will say that she took, uh, as I think Alcott did in terms of it's semi-autobiographical because it's not set in the exact same time periods that she was the same age as Joe March. Sure. Um, so Little Women uh, opens on Christmas time of 1860. Um, and Mr. March, or father as he is called, uh, is, quote, away down south where the fighting is. In 1860. Um, so that's backtracking from like one document or one letter that is referenced in the book. Huh. Um, timeline wise would put that Christmas of 1860. Um, okay. Since the first shots at Fort Sumter weren't <laughs> fired until April of 61, <laughs> um, it would be impossible for a father <laughs> to be fighting in the Civil War in Christmas of 1860. Okay. So there's some shoddy reporting going on. It's fine. She took some liberties, as most novelists do when writing historical fiction. Okay. But Brooks up the timeline to be a bit more historically accurate. Oh, good for um, her. So she has the story open um, at the Battle of Ball's Bluff, as you mentioned, which is a site that is near uh, their... I don't know if they still own that home in Virginia, but at one point she and her husband lived at that home yeah. in Virginia. Yeah. The book is written nearly all in the voice and perspective of March, um, with the exception of a couple of chapters near the end where we get Marmy's his voice, wife. his Mrs. March, yes. as it were, sure. who in the 1994 movie is played by Susan Sarandon. Okay. Um, okay. And that is because he is gravely ill as the telegram uh, to marmy and the daughters reveals um and she needs to go so the alternate of you either get marmy's version of what is happening at that point or you get like the delirium of a man 
Who is sick? And you have who to is do like sick a dream sequence. Door. Okay, you, that's Which, a whole other thing. W- would be interesting and would be a choice, um, but <laughs> would I think be really hard to read? Is the book? So you mentioned a telegram. Is the book like written as if it were? letters and diary entries or is it just over the shoulder narration is it both um it's a little bit of both okay he is the army chaplain in this union troop in the south um and has just gone through uh the battle of boss bluff which um a union loss as i recall a union loss sort of tragic a little bit it basically stems from what i understand a inexperienced leader an inexperienced captain uh mm. who thought that a line of trees was a line of tents of confederate soldiers so what he attacked the trees kind of and like yeah. wasted all his bullets approached it like it was going to be an unguarded confederate camp um and in fact was then surrounded by confederate troops um, and the only place for the Union troops to go was over the bluff into the Potomac River. Oh, bad, bad. Yeah, not great. That's bad um, military. It, a lot of people died. Yeah, a couple. Um, yeah, several thousand. A lot of people were shot, um, fell over the bluffs, fell to their deaths, or those that got into the river. Um, not a lot of them were avid swimmers or could swim at all. <laughs> I like that not avid swimmers. Um, I'm really into swimming, so I'm just gonna sit this one out. Well, and I don't. I, the I there. I am sure there were New Englanders who could swim very well. Um, <laughs> but when the rivers are frozen or very frigid for most of the year, yeah, it's not um, the, the 19th century polar bo- polar bear club, is what you're saying, right? Right. Okay. Um, so there was uh, not necessarily PE class in 19th century middle school. No, no. <laughs> Though Alcott's father is credited for inventing recess, like school recess. Yeah, like run he, around and play tag. Recess. Yeah, like be outside and experience nature. Um, in the midst of your day of learning. Um, Interesting. Yeah. What was his, do you know what his reasoning was? I think it was to experience the world. I mean, he was... Well, wait a second, because well, the playground is a very my, very minor part he of w- it. He, cool. was, he was good buddies with Emerson and Thoreau, who were also big fans oh, of so nature. Like, go out into nature during recess. Mm-hmm. Huh. Um, with your fellow man, regardless of his skin tone or her skin tone. Huh. Um, the Alcott family actually had to move a couple of times um, because he was trying to uh, racially integrate his schoolhouses. Interesting. A man far before his time. Yeah. Okay. Anyway. So so a bunch of dudes who can't swim chase at trees and then they die or, or get hurt. A lot of them. And so that um, seems like a lot of work for an army chaplain. Yeah. And he, um, this is the first time in this first chapter of the book um, we realize that uh, this sort of pacifist man um, is going to encounter a lot of things that he's going to have to wrestle with for the rest of his life. Okay. Um, so he goes down the side of the bluff um, with a young soldier, and I think March is like 40 okay. when he goes down into sure, the war. Sure. Um, and they remark many times that he is significantly older than most of yeah, that makes sense. the men who are going. Um, yeah. So you know, us in our 30-ish 
range as we are currently. Um, mm-hmm. Don't think of 40 as being particularly advanced in age. Um, but when you would think that most of the soldiers are in their late teens, um, that's yeah. a significant age difference. Yeah, most of the men doing the dearest petunia are like 19, yeah. 20. Yeah, okay. Um, and uh, the young man who goes down with March into the river and cannot swim. Okay. And he is weighed down by his uniform, by his jacket, by his guns, and uh, he dies. He okay. drowns. Okay. Um. And that is sort of the first glimpse of... Like, war is bad, war is sad. War is bad, and war will hang with you. Okay, Um, sure. I don't want to say, like, a ghost that will haunt him, because it's... The book doesn't talk about it as a as As a ghost. But he does think about that character Yes, he thinks about him. um, And later on, when he is, uh, quote, gravely ill uh, in the hospital, um, he's... He says some names, um, and that young man's name is one of the names that he says. That's one of those things where, and you see this in a lot of war fiction, where the characters end up dwelling on, and I can only imagine what it's like to actually see this firsthand, uh, a a death in combat that otherwise feels senseless. Which, like, that type of conflict in general can kind of, war as hell, can kind of be like, why are we doing any of this? Why are we shooting each other? That's a different sentiment than because we were here. Like I was just reading the news the other day. There was a serviceman, I think, in Syria, uh, somewhere in the Middle East, and like it was a it was a truck that rolled, and someone died. And it's like they were not fighting. It was just, and this is obviously the aftermath of a battle, but it is not like you got shot in combat with our enemy. That seems like it would take a different psychological toll. And we can definitely talk about that later because the end of the book very much focuses on the fact of this man who is himself nonviolent. Sure. And his feeling and reluctance to go home to his wife and daughters because he feels, how can he go home when so many cannot? Oh, sure. Yeah. Like he's not, he's not, he shouldn't be allowed to. Correct. And he is not the direct cause of death mm-hmm. because he there's a even a period of time where he is offered a weapon and he, and he won't does take not take it okay um so he is not the cause of the death of people directly in that he shoots the but bullet he is or, enlisted as a correct. chaplain he's in um, an army sure yeah so there's we could do a whole podcast well, about that that's a whole different kind of thing so um, this battle happens but anyway this battle happens and we get sort of the first note of his personality i guess i'll say (laughs) okay Um, i presume he has one no he does he does (laughs) okay um i'm trying to find it here thought i had written it down and maybe i didn't um basically he gets through this battle and he uh has promised to marmy that he would write uh something to her every day okay um and we no, if you have followed any sort of love story during times of war, um, that those letters back and forth are um, particularly important, especially to those at home. He says, I promised that I would write something every day and, my, and I find myself turning to this obligation when my mind is most troubled. Uh, I am thankful that she is not here to see what I must see, to know what I have come to know in this disaster. And with this thought, I censor myself, quote, I never promised I would write the truth. Hmm. 
So we get letters that he writes home. Okay. Um, that I do not recall Whether or not hearing book, of any of sure, them sure. in Little, Little Women. Women. Yeah. Um, but it's clear he's, that he's editing. He's choosing to reveal certain things and not others. Yeah. This happens a little bit later on also as he becomes ill with a fever that then becomes a reoccurring thing um, that contributes to his delirium and, and grave sickness um, when Marmy shows up um, and she is completely caught off guard because he has he chosen. It. Yeah. And in this book, he notes that he is not wanting to worry her and not wanting to worry the daughters oh, man. because they have enough to worry about and they are living life without him and living yeah. life without his fortune that has been squandered. Well, and I think and you see that. Yeah, you see that in, in fiction like this a lot and not even in fiction, it, it, certainly in letter collections during wartime where, and it goes both ways. It's a two-way street, right? Where it's, I don't want to worry you about anything that recently happened on the front lines. Also, stuff's going bad at home, but we don't want to put it in the letters to the person out there because they have enough to worry about. Right. Hmm. And then people come home and things are all different. And it's like, what happened? Oh, no, we didn't want to tell you. Well, in this, so I'm not going chronologically, but I hope anybody okay. who has sense of the Little Women story... It doesn't or matter. Maybe we you can Google switch. it before you listen to this next part. Um, so while uh, Mr. March is in the hospital and sort of in and out of consciousness and delirium um, is when in Little Women, Beth gets scarlet fever. Oh, sure. That's like a big thing. Um, so she, Beth, the third daughter, has always been the meekest of the daughters. Her health has always been poor. She spends very little time outside. Um, March calls her my little mouse. Okay. Um, in in affection for Beth and Marmy leaves. Marmy leaves the hospital in DC to go home to her daughter to hopefully reach oh. Beth in time. So she's before... come to see her dying husband Correct. or her sick husband and goes back home. And with she her daughter chooses sick. to okay. leave because of the daughter um, and leaves a note with um, John Brooke, who has come down to DC with her, which uh, that man later marries Meg, okay. the eldest daughter. Sure. Yep. Yep. Um, but leaves a note that says, I know you're struggling with what on earth is there to live for, but I know what we live for, and it is our family. It is our little women, and I will be Title home. Title card. Title card. <laughs> um, I will be home with them when you are strong enough to join us. Okay. Um, and he essentially finds some strength sure, in that. there. Okay. Um, in her... So he makes that as a her book. battle of how much do I tell him? Yeah, that we need him. Um, while she's also battling some changes in him that she was unaware were going to happen. Okay. So um, that's so we the the guy we meet at the beginning of the book is like, oh my god, this war is terrible. Look at the tragedy of these young men. The guy we meet at the end of the book, the guy who becomes at the end of the book, he is ill, family he's ill back, pretty home, jaded, pretty bad. Okay. Um, so what happens in between? What what goes on in this book? What are a, or at least a couple big things? So yeah. we can't cover the whole thing. So after the Battle of the Bluff, he Ball's is Bluff. Ball's Bluff. It's a funny name. I gotta say it every time. Yeah. Okay. He goes to what has been set up as the makeshift hospital in an estate nearby, and as he is walking up the path 
to that estate where he expects to give a lot of sort of last rites and testaments and confessions sure. and things. Um, he realizes he's been there before. 20 years ago, when he was a teenager, um, he was a man who was a peddler in the South. He was peddling housewares and books, um, was an educated man, um, and very much enjoyed speaking with anybody who he could learn anything from. And so we get a couple of uh, chapters where we glimpse his multiple months, I'm going to say, that he spent at the Clement Estate. Okay. I like to be nice to people when I can, but I cannot imagine that a traveling salesman would show up on our doorstep and I would be like, wow, your stuff is really good. That book looks really good. Would you like to stay with us until I read every book in your traveling salesman case? (laughs) I cannot imagine that that would ever be my reaction. Is that, that's like sort of like long-term Airbnb, right? Kind of. We are not Airbnb. Like we will use Airbnb. We will never. We be do not let who will our take guest borders. room. To it reminds me of Forrest Gump's house, kind of where like Elvis stayed there. Sure, some nefarious men stayed there. Sure, but people just come in and out. You got a big house. You got a room to let. You got all these kinds of things. Now, of course, this is the pre-Civil War South, and yes. there's plenty of other people that could have probably lived in those homes or had those resources, and they didn't. Or, you know, all of the hundreds or thousands of slaves that maybe could have lived inside the big house. Yeah, exactly. You know, as Um, workers on on an estate as opposed to slaves. But nonetheless, you are taking in encyclopedia salesmen. Essentially. (laughs) Our young Mr. March um, is quite taken um, with a literate, beautiful slave girl. Huh. Um, Her name is Grace. Um, she lives in the house, and her primary task is to take care of Mrs. Clement, okay. um, who is very poor in health, um, very uh, ill and tired and exhausted very easily. I don't think it ever mentions what her She's ailment so particularly is. That's, um, that's a trope. There's just old sick ladies in books Not sometimes. old, though. Just oh, ill. Just, just, <laughs> just ill. Sorry, Mrs. Clement. Didn't um, mean to presume. <laughs> Uh, and Grace reads poetry to her and all these things. Okay. Um, we later come to find um, that uh, Grace has been afforded these luxuries of learning to read and write um, and to live in the big house um, because she is, in fact, the slave daughter of Mr. Clement. Okay. And because she is literate... Um, she befriends March, who is very taken by her, both in uh, personality and looks. Ooh, why'd you say it like that? Um, because he gets his first kiss from this woman named Grace. Huh. Grace encourages him on the sly to teach the slave children, particularly the house slave children, um, mm-hmm. those that are being sort of prepared to be the cooks and the butler kind mm-hmm. of folk is this how the book is referring to them like how does the how does march speak about people who are enslaved as a northerner in the south right because he is a northerner yes he is a northerner um and he is a staunch abolitionist okay Um, so i don't want to say that he doesn't see color because we all know that that's not that's not a a real real thing. thing He is, but he the is first time to relate to the to people as people, correct? Okay. Um, and the first time he sees Grace, he's taken by her beauty and her 
posture or stature. Sure, he, she stands he, very okay, like rod, rail rod, Ram tall. Rod, yeah, whatever that whatever that phrase <laughs> that is. idiom is. Um, she stands at full height. Okay, like she is a proud. Yeah, Woman? yeah, it, and that doesn't read problematic in you know like male gazy way or anything like that. It feels just like it. It feels more mm. a reflection of a character that Geraldine Brooks is trying to ascribe to her. A, a yeah, I think of it is complementary of her. Okay, um, in a world where many of the other slave characters that he meets are initially portrayed as perhaps cowering or. Um, withdrawing. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, yeah. That's in a very sort of that's a we- afraid or cautious. Cautious is probably the better. Yes. Descriptor. Yes. Um, whereas she is never. But she also is afforded certain things that allow her to exhibit that yes. type of confidence. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, I just kind of want to figure out like where Brooks is and where March is on some of this stuff. Yeah. Okay. Um, so she has encouraged March to teach some of these children their letters. Mm-hmm. Um, Master Clement finds out, um, finds bad. that it is Grace's doing. Oh, boy. March is asked to leave. That's his punishment. Um, but before he leaves, uh, Clement asks him to come to the barn with him. Um, and March watches Grace be beaten Ugh. and whipped the scars that she has for the rest of her life. Yeah. This is not an experience that March ever tells his wife. Sure. Yep. Um, shortly thereafter, we hear the story of how he met Marmy. Okay. Um, sure. through her brother who was the Reverend day. Okay. Um, and was taken by her frankness and her abolitionist. Sure. Ideals. Um, yeah. And she's strong and she's opinionated and passionate about yes. what she believes in. Okay. Um, and All right, Mr. March. You're doing okay so far. Um, yeah. He describes her as sort of striking but not beautiful. Okay, Mr. March. <laughs> um, um, careful there. But he is taken with her immediately. Um, oh, God. Okay. It's not love at first sight, but love at first listen maybe that's weird he doesn't is that that's not thing? what geraldine brooks says that's my is that a thing of... from a magazine no i don't know but like i mean inherently people become more or less attractive when they open their mouth that is true that is a true thing okay it happens now i'm also thinking about the phrase love at first sight and i'm plugging in the other senses and it's getting weird <laughs> like smell love and... it for let me just say them out loud mm-hmm. love at first sight okay love at first listen or sound or hearing which is what you just said okay one could fall in love with say like a musical voice yeah yeah that's a trope in film or a a laugh you know yeah love at first smell ew ew love at first touch inappropriate Inappropriate. don't meet someone and immediately touch them love at first taste Even more so that you shouldn't touch strangers. You shouldn't taste them. Inappropriate. I tasted you from the minute I tasted you. I knew you will got. Oh, you all can't see my face, but it is twisted in a very unfortunate way. In disgust. Striking, though. Uh, so, okay. We got we to gotta keep moving. Anyway, so what, anyway, anyway. So then he meets 
Marmy. He marries Marmy. He has his daughters. Yes. So, so we what's get... going on in the war? Um, then? So uh, I know that's the next big part of the book. Yeah. So they are very much part of the New England sort of abolitionist movement. Um, the, the marches. F- the marches. Okay. Um, they are very close with the Emersons and the Throws. Um, oh, oh the real people. In, the real people. Okay. And they remain part of the Underground Railroad. They refer to it as taking packages for the cause. Hmm. Not a thing I'd heard before. Okay. Yeah. But the fortune that March had created, and he was quite successful in his peddling of uh, wares and things, is actually lost slowly um, as he gives all of his money to John Brown. Huh. What okay. used to be a very prominent New England colonial home with very fine wares and chinas and rugs and all kinds of things slowly has to be given away, um, and they move into what he calls the tiny brown house, hmm. um, which is where the girls are living during okay. Little Women. His relationship with John Brown is pretty complicated, as John Brown does not remain a sort of pacifist yeah of course um he becomes fairly violent for the cause and march really struggles to deal with the fact that violence might be necessary in order to end slavery yeah yeah and and that's a it's a common he also doesn't tell marmy that all the money is gone oh march until she flat out asks about it march not great so he has some flaws oh sure (laughs) there are some communication issues in this relationship (laughs) they did not Um, they they love each other very much um they don't perhaps communicate in the way that our marriage counseling had suggested that we be open sure. and honest yeah. about things that may or may not be difficult. As you read earlier, he seems to to prize selective mm-hmm. communication. Okay, sure. And uh, so the Civil War starts and all of these young men are going off to war. They ask him to say a few words. And because we get a little bit of Marmy's point of view a little bit later... This is the one scene where we have two points of view. Oh, okay. Um, we have March, who is uh, quoting from scripture um, and basically saying, you go to do a noble thing and you will be the salvation of so many people. You will help them to know the plenty that God has given man um, and all these things. He's looking at Marmy and seeing her well with emotion um, and thinks she knew before I knew that I was going to say that I would go with them. Okay. Um, the converse is that Marmy is welling because she knows that he's already made that decision and there's nothing she can do to stop him. Yeah. Um, hmm. And so he goes and when he is at this makeshift hospital that is at the Clement state um, after that first battle, after 20 years of being gone, um, oh, that's right. That's where we were. Okay. Yep. He sees Grace. Huh. She is still there because Master Clement, her father, is near death and still And she's caring there. For and him. she is okay. caring for him. Okay. Um, everyone else that he knew from that time there is gone. Now is this in technically in the north or technically in the south? South. Oh. Essentially one thing comes to another. He's rediscovered that Grace is like a thing and he's got 
sort of seated desires for her. Mm -hmm. Um, And he essentially is caught in an embrace with her. Yes. And is then stationed to a plantation (laughs) elsewhere. (laughs) As you would be, sir. And uh, he calls it a liberated plantation. It's called Oaks Landing. Okay. Um, And it's here that he becomes familiar with what are called contrabands. Sure, yeah. Okay, so that's where this is taking place. So I had told you to perhaps do a little digging if you were not already familiar. Contrabands Mm -hmm. were was a phrase used to describe a status for certain escaped slaves or those that had been uh, had come to be affiliated with the Union forces. Yes. So the first instance that we have, there's, you know, the first use of the phrase contraband specifically for an escaped slave that would work with the Union army um, is accredited to William Budd of the USS Resolute. Uh, but the first story we have about it is General Benjamin Butler, not Benjamin Button, which is a, would be a whole different, different thing. thing. Uh, in 1861, he refused to return three escaped slaves and classified them as contraband, which is, again, these are people. And the term contraband comes from like stolen goods. So let's just say that out loud and how messed up that mm-hmm, is. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but he... Was basic. He was a former lawyer, and his legal logic was that since Virginia was now a foreign power, because they had seceded from the Union, yes, um, that the Fugitive Slave Act was null and void. And Lincoln disapproved of this rationale because I don't think Lincoln ever wanted us to think of the Confederacy as another country. Right. Um, it was rebels within states. So that's an interesting like. Just like wrap your mind around that. Um, the the Confiscation Act of 1861 made it legal to just take stuff from the con- Confederate military, including slaves. Including people who were incorrectly classified as things. Um, and this create, ended up creating things. Uh, there were over 100 contraband camps, and they were former slaves who eventually started getting paid. Eventually. S- eventually. Um, and I don't know if the book deals with this, but there was the Grand Contraband Camp at Fort Hampton. Uh, I don't which talk about that, but there's the it promise ultimately had like of... ten thousand people. Yeah, because people would there. escape to that camp. Yes, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. if they couldn't get further. Yeah, uh, go. You're you are holding the book right now because you want to reference holding something. The book. Okay, go for um, it. So on this plantation where uh, March has been sent to. Uh, essentially be the schoolmaster. He's going to teach these uh, contraband slaves to read and write um, and give them some upward mobility. He goes to Oak Landing, um, which used to be owned by the Croft family. Um, Mr. Croft has deceased and uh, his lady wife is no his longer... That's what they call her. Um <laughs> Um, has gone into a city. She no longer wants to be on the plantation alone. Okay. Um, and so, uh, as I understand it, uh, the leasing of these sort of liberated plantations, as they were, um, were available to Northerners huh. to come and run for profit, and they were going to pay the workers during on the, the land war. during the war. Interesting. And this is the first time that March at least in this story, that he meets the lesser, um, the least 
holding person of the land, right? Less lesser, lease, I don't know. I don't know. I'm Whatever the correct in phrase the English is. Anyway, right now. Um, his name is Ethan Canning, um, and he's an attorney from Illinois. And he says to March after his arrival, and he's met a slave that has been treated very poorly. And he's appalled by it because these people are under the protection of the Union forces. And Why are we treating them like this? Yeah, we yeah, treat yeah. them yeah. like they are still slaves when they, in fact, are not. Are not. They yeah. are liberated. Canning says to him on the first night, I don't claim to be the angel of abolition like you, Mr. March. I'm a businessman, simple as that. Yet we both have a role to play in the betterment of the Negro's condition. I came here with more than an ordinary interest in the free labor labor enterprise. I believe that the production of cotton and sugar by free label must be both possible and profitable for them as well as us. So Hmm. he, it's the first time that I think March has encountered a northerner from Illinois, not from New England, who is on board with free enterprise and not on board with slavery, but is also like, no, these people actually need to work. Like, just because that kid told you that he's got a cough doesn't mean that he can't work the fields. Mm, Um, So there's some things going on with Mr. Canning's sort of yeah. view of humans in general <laughs> and is that kind of the arc of this book for march is that like he's got his ideals he's in the and, army and for learning a reason what happens when your ideals are challenged sure sure um, he spends a lot of time uh convincing canning that they should make their lives better for these people and they will work harder for them and and life is pretty good he ends up making it a pretty pleasant place in retrospect um and in his second year he gets this sort of reoccurring fever illness Um, and i think sort of the marker of his acceptance into that liberated slave community the contraband community is that they are the ones who take care of him huh okay there is a rebel attack that occurs people who are not on board of course not (laughs) with this sort of arrangement and march sort of we see the start of the rest of the times that he's going to be haunted by his nonviolence and ideals being the cause as he sees it of other people's death so he is hiding and the rebels show up and know that there is this northerner abolitionist they know his name and one of the house Kind of like, how dare he be here? How dare he be here? How dare he not show his face? What a coward. He remarks that cowardness and courage are closely intertwined. And he, in that moment, could not make himself move. Um, He was overcome by the cowardness of saving his own life, which meant that other people lost their lives. Yeah. And these rebels burn most of the farm. They burn all of the crop. Yeah, um, yeah, and take into bondage these other these slaves yeah. um, to sell them back into slavery further south. And does he just then? Then he just kind of gets out of dodge, and then is sick, and that's kind of he does not. Um, there is one slave who got away, okay, um, and finds him, and they decide they're going to follow the rebels. Um, to try and free as many people as possible. And this contraband slave is going, also assumes that March will help him kill as many of these rebels as possible who killed a number of their community and things like that. Um, and that it, he's the person who hands March a weapon um, and he says no. Mm. 
So he so, does not end, in the book. He does not end up compromising. No. Yeah. Okay. Though he is part of a skirmish that results in a bunch of people who he has grown to love, including a number of his students, a number of children, um, who he remarks many times. Uh, this one little girl reminds him of Amy um, and yada, 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 and then becomes haunted by all of their deaths as he does not protect them. He cannot protect sure. them. Um, there is one slave girl who is a teenager. Uh, she's mute because she was captured earlier, uh, abused, and her tongue was cut out. Cool so times, she America. Not, Good work. She does not speak the entirety of no, the book. No, I don't think that she would. Um, but she is. She and March are the two people that we know come out of this whole skirmish alive, and it is because she drags him into the woods um, after they have killed her young son, who I think is like four hmm. or something. And when he comes to and asks her what happened, she is she obviously cannot speak. Yep. Um, but she essentially conveys to him that everyone is gone. And he says, uh, even Jim C. And she nods and pulls a lock of hair from her bodice that is her son's. Yeah. Um, and gives a portion of it to March, which he adds to a small envelope that carries a lock of hair for Marmy, Meg, Joe. Beth sure, and Amy. Sure. This slave woman uh, wrote um, on the headpiece that she had uh, and laid it with him as she laid it near where she knew a medical ship was going to find him that said, this is Captain March. He is a good, kind man. Like, take care of him. He is from Concord. Okay. That is a ship that uh, brings his body to Washington, D.C. Um, his living body, not his, his living dead. body. His living body. <laughs> his living human body. And delivered to Washington uh, to that hospital is where Marmy receives okay. the telegram cool. that he is gravely ill. So then so, we like intertwine yeah, yeah, back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So like pulling back, we're you know we need to start wrapping up. So mm-hmm. what? What is that? Meets Grace again. We got one more meeting with Grace. Mm-hmm. Okay, how does that go? Okay, so at the hospital, Marmy shows up. Now we're in Marmy's brain, and she uh, learns that the person who knows the most about his case is this nurse, Grace Clement, who is the sort of right-hand lady of the surgeon. And she comes upon March and sees him interacting with Grace. Um, She's touching his face in a very affectionate way. He responds. Uh, In kind? Yeah. Uh Um, And she panics. And has no idea what is happening because she does not know that this woman even exists. Nope, of course not. And uh, at one point is delivered his effects, which include the envelope that has... And there's like extra hair in it? Okay. Quote, unquote, Negro hair. <laughs> okay. Um, so she... So presumption of like a child uh-huh. or it's hers uh-huh. or... Okay. And uh, Marmy ends up confronting Grace about it. And Grace basically says... This is ancient history, and... Here's your man. It doesn't mean anything, and you are the reason that he will live or die. Whoa. Good job, Grace. That he needs a reason to live, and it will not be me. Huh. The reason needs to be you. You need to have the hope. You need to instill in him the hope that the world will go on. Hmm. And... She's super conflicted about the whole thing because she doesn't know a lot. But okay, that does also explain why she might decide, hey, you gotta get better, I gotta go. Yeah. That certainly explains that decision. Uh-huh. Okay. 
Grace lives with the doctor and his wife and his family um, and invites Marmee to come and stay with them while she is in D.C., yep. mm-hmm. treats her with all kindness possible, um, and she encourages Marmee to make sure that Marmee will okay. live. Yeah. Um, so, so, like, the thing that you've referred to a couple of times in this book is this idealistic man kind of being changed by war confronted by war having to admit things about the world maybe that he otherwise would rather not be the case yeah um i imagine that is at the heart of what is really working for this book like this that's what this book is about yeah yeah you know i think that it it comes along with what does a what might war do to someone especially someone who is so who's not a combatant who is not a combatant interesting Um, and uh do you think the book do you think brooks or maybe even march comes away with it i guess not march but like is the book making a judgment on his pacifism because i think that's a thing that we're dealing with right now as people are kind of sorting out how they are how comfortable they are fighting for certain things Right. Right. You know, certain priorities and certain people and what fight means to them and what resistance means to them. That's a lot of what we're talking about in the news and online and stuff. Sure. Um, Does the book seem to do you come away from the book thinking like it he should have done something else? Is it just a portrait of what this type of personality can lead to? Um, Am I barking up a wrong tree? No, I think it asks the question as to, you know, you you grow up and perhaps are raised in a certain way so that you have certain ideals and how might those change. About a year-ish probably into his time in the war, um, there's a chapter that ends and says, one day I hope to go back to my wife, to my girls, but also to the man of moral certainty that I was that mm. day, that innocent man who knew with such clear confidence exactly what it was he was meant to do. Mm. Which I think is sort of an interesting way to think about things, how to go back to mm, moral well, certainty. Yeah, there's um, a lot, well, there's a lot about that, right? You know, like... But going- that can... That can be a double-edged sword. It can deafen your ears to other other experiences, experiences, which I think he states that before he even meets Ethan Canning, I think. This other northerner who is not for slavery, but But is very different from him. And and would and would execute abolition differently. Yes. And follow through on it differently. In a way that perhaps even to our modern ears is like It's like maybe not great, but maybe Ethan cannot, not Ethan Canning. Am I right? He doesn't make it. Okay, good. Get out of here, Ethan. Wow. I mean, they they end up being friends, and yeah, okay. Uh, I mean, I don't want to rejoice in anyone's fair. demise. Sure, sure. That's very um, kind of you. <laughs> even fictional people. Even fictional people. <laughs> um, so we we should yeah. we should come we should real close. Up. Anything um, else? that struck you about this book about the tone of it is there anything like why do you think this book resonated Um, what's going to stick with you or i think that part of why it resonated with me is the reason why historical fiction resonates with me i 
was never very good at remembering year item year item in terms okay. of history yeah yeah, yeah, um, yeah be it american or world um that was never something that was very good and never stuck in my head sure um what i needed were sort of personal through lines i needed a story to tell um which is probably why i ended up gravitating towards studying theater and i practice yeah theater now yeah um because it is story based it is individual based it is personal um in story so something like world war ii was not that interesting to me until i read number of the stars okay um and then i was fascinated by that particular story and wondering what other stories were sure. there okay and okay. stories are numerous yeah, as there are yeah. people um as there are viewpoints yeah and so i think that taking a story like little women that i had admiration for um, and fond memories of to think oh someone's thought about what was happening with father at that point yeah no i okay i want to know that because i don't the civil war is not a period of time that i am intimately in knowledge of and so to know things like the liberated plantations was not something that I knew about. I certainly in... had not heard very many specifics about contrabands either. Right. That's not a thing I knew about. Um, and I had not thought about really what it would have been like to be essentially a pacifist. Yeah. And, but and also a, a staunch abolitionist. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I grew up in a house where both my parents are clergy so the necessity of thinking of other people's feelings in their situation has always been yeah, that, prominent that in my sense. forefront, yeah. you know, the mm-hmm. forefront of my mind. Um, and to imagine someone like that with a similar sort of think of the individual, think of others going into that situation yeah. was appealing to me and interesting to me. Sure. Um, so I very much enjoyed it. Um, I'm sure that you could write mr march's story a thousand other ways <laughs> yeah yeah and i wonder so she did she did do some research on the alcott like letters and diaries and things to mm-hmm. fill it in but obviously she as you very said, much based him on bronson alcott yeah. um his letters other people's letters about him he's quoted in thoreau and emerson documents mm. and journals and various okay. other things um she grace is fully fictional as okay. an individual, okay. um, but she based it off of a um, sort of a novel, um, not a novel, uh, a nonfiction sort of biography of, uh, I can't remember exactly what it's called, and I could flip through the pages, but that would take a while. Um, basically, the viewpoint of a of a house slave who was the child of the master. Of the plantation um, owner. And yeah. afforded those, you know. Luxuries. she could read yeah yeah she could write um and what that did in terms of separating her from her people While and joining her... her separate from anyone else yeah yeah okay um so oh, cool. i think it was fascinating um thanks for if you it, have interest in historical fiction and or have ties to little women um, I don't think it changes anything that I feel about Little Women. <laughs> okay, yeah, we we don't have time um, to talk about that, but it doesn't sound like it. It doesn't sound like it's like rewriting parts of Little Women. It doesn't sound no, like it's certainly not doing that kind of companion um, novel retconning. And I was delighted when she would 
tie in little bits of their personalities or storylines or... But it also does not presuppose knowledge of Little Women. You don't need it. No, okay. certainly not. Good to know. Um, you know, nowhere in this, except for maybe like a passing glance that he notices between Meg and John on his arrival home, do you know that Meg and John Brooke end up married. Okay. And you never know which sister, Laurie, who was played by Christian Bale in yeah, the 1994 okay. film. Sure. Um, which sister he ends up with. Okay. Um, and so it's it's not necessary to know the Little Women story, but it if you do know it, you can find Little the veins. Get some that, nugs in there. Yeah. Okay. I don't like Little Women nugs. No. Uh-uh. <laughs> well... That's not okay fine. uh so if you yeah. the thank you for reading this book You're welcome um if you the listener have any other thoughts about little women or questions about this book or, or things thoughts about the civil war um you should send them to us we all have thoughts about the civil war as we should how about this if you don't have thoughts about the civil war get some and get some good ones don't get bad ones yeah that's that's my advice for the week. Um, you can reach out to us using the email overduepod at gmail.com. You can find us on social media at facebook.com slash overduepod and twitter.com slash overduepod. I want to thank uh, a bunch of people who reached out to us this week. Uh, a lot of folks talking about our Choose Your Own Adventure episode. Um, Thomas, Mr. Fithic, Grace, Jocelyn, Tessa, Megan, Ariel, Christine, uh, Sarah, Lauren, Brittany, Jay Deep, Mady, Charlotte, Sean, Rebecca, Melissa, uh, Milky Chai, Karen, Katie, Noel, Stephanie, Becky, Alice, Simeon, Graham, Robin, Albie, Erica, Tiffany, Mags, Leslie, and Nicola, Owen, oh, Philip, and Christina as well. Uh, Guys, so, that's a lot of people. Yeah, a bunch of those people at the end shared some scary cat photos with us on Facebook. Hey, Facebook. I like <laughs> cats. cats photos and videos on the internet so thanks for that um usually i would toss it to andrew for this next part do you know any of this next part i didn't prep you what next part do you want me to say i say if folks want to know more about the show where should they go um you could go to the website which is overduepodcast.com that's correct where we have links to old episodes of the show. We have Amazon links for the books that we've read and books we're going to read. I'll put the schedule up for June up there shortly. Um, we are go. There's also links to iTunes where you can leave a review to let us know what you think about the show. That also helps people find the show. There are links to RSS feed and to new listener episodes and Spreaker, our podcast host, and HeadGum, our podcast network. I did that in the reverse order than Andrew normally does it. Something about RSS feeds. Yeah, that's how you subscribe to the show. If yeah, you're not, do that. You do it so that you can listen and tell folks about the show as well. Um, I think that's it, right? Anything else? No, probably not. Okay. Uh, I'm going to real quick look up what Andrew is reading for next week because I haven't posted it yet. Andrew is going to read Kashiel's Dart for next week. Um, I have a feeling he's already finished it uh, on his trip. So look forward to that. Laura, thanks for doing the podcast with me. Thanks for having me. I was really nervous. You did a good job. I hope so. Me too. <laughs> All right, everybody. Thanks for listening. Yeah, we'll see you next week. And in the meantime, try to be happy. Whoa.
That was a HeadGum Podcast.